Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This episode, well, we have a special episode. We have a wonderful interview. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. I am coming to you with my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, here. And uh, I am recording this on Monday, but I will be heading to the airport, as we mentioned on our uh, earlier show, to head to New Zealand, Auckland, New Zealand. Mossy, I'm heading there for the FIFA World Cup draw for the uh, Women's World Cup, which we know is happening next summer in uh, Australia and New Zealand. I'm excited about this. I am being brought in by FIFA. I am part of the presentation. No idea yet exactly what they are going to have me do or how I will be featured, but an incredible honor and a uh, privilege to be able to uh, go down there. I've worked now multiple Women's World Cups. Uh, I love them. And this one is going to be literally bigger than anything we have seen with 32 teams, including the defending World Cup champions, uh, our women's national team, going for potentially three in a row, something that uh, has never been done. And this is the first Women's World Cup with 32 teams. Uh, in terms of how the draw is going to work, uh, very similar to the men's yep. one. You've got uh, four seeding pots based on each team's FIFA ranking. The two hosts, Australia and New Zealand, automatically placed in pot one. The three playoff winners will automatically go into pot four. Those are still to be determined. But yeah, the U.S., as you might expect, is in pot one, along with New Zealand, Australia, Sweden, Germany, England, France, and Spain. So they will be one of the seeded teams in their group. And yeah, we've talked about it. I mean, the U.S., they won the last two World Cups, but... Uh, it's going to be a real challenge to three-peat because these European nations are coming on strong. The Englands, the Germanys, the Swedens, the Netherlands are all going to be very tough. So we'll see how the draw shakes out and how the groups uh, are drawn, and then we'll go from there. Well, I hopefully will have plenty of stories to tell uh, you and uh, our listeners when I get back from uh, this uh, this amazing trip. I'll be gone for about a week, as I mentioned before. Uh, it's a very it's a very long trip. I leave on Monday. I get there on uh, Wednesday, but. It's, I couldn't be happier and more excited to be able uh, to be able to do it. Uh, as we also mentioned, this is a very special uh, podcast because I sat down a little earlier with Adam Elder. Now, he is a writer, and he wrote a book that is near and dear to my heart. Back in 1990, and you'll hear us discuss this, um, I was just a 20 or 19-year-old, 20-year-old, turning 20-year-old kid bumming around Europe and watching our U.S. men's national team play 
in Italy in uh, in the World Cup and doing a lot of other things besides watching soccer. But anyway, Adam Elder wrote New Kids in the World Cup, the totally late 80s, early 90s tale of the team that changed American soccer forever. It's a very long title, but it's an interesting conversation about something that I think our listeners will enjoy. There is an incredible history that we talk about. And so, without further ado, my conversation with Adam. You know, a lot of times on the State of the Union, we talk about the history when it comes to American soccer. And, you know, sometimes we apologize for what we aren't. But the reality is that we have a pretty amazing and robust history. Now, sometimes it takes you a little while to find it. But if you do take the time and sometimes the work to uh, discover it and unearth it. It, like I said, is incredibly fascinating both on and off the field. And that's why I wanted to talk to Adam Elder. Adam Elder is joining us today on the State of the Union podcast here. And he is the author of an upcoming book called New Kids in the World Cup, the totally late 80s and early 90s tale of the team that changed American soccer forever. It drops on November 1st uh, from University of Nebraska Press. Adam Elder is an award-winning journalist and editor in San Diego. His writings, you've seen it in the New York Times and Wired and Esquire and the Wall Street Journal, and it goes on and on and on. The man knows what he is doing. But he decided to focus in on the 1990. World Cup. So first off, Adam, welcome to the show. And right off the bat, there's so much now that is available to look into and dive into when it comes to American soccer. And a lot of it is interesting. A lot of it is is more recent. 1990. Uh, take us back at, to 1990 and why you decided that that was the World Cup team that you wanted to talk about. I know there's a lot of stories on and off the field. And just for context, I was 20 years old back in 1990. And as a matter of fact, I attended the World Cup in 1990 in Italy. I was bumming around Europe with a bunch of my friends, drinking a lot of beer and uh, chasing girls and watching the World Cup. It was a wonderful, wonderful summer, wonderful, wonderful uh, trip. But take us back and why this particular team. That sounds amazing, being at the World Cup. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, To answer your question about why this team, a while ago, I did a story for the New Yorker's website on the making of the music video that they made. That that rap video mm-hmm. um, with them dancing on the beach, and you know, it's become kind of <laughs> infamous. Um, I knew there had to be like a great story behind it, and so I was interviewing a lot of players on the 1990 team. And just as I, I, I talked to way too many of them for for just a little story about a music video, but uh, as I was talking to them, I, I didn't know much about the team, too much about the World Cup. I mean, I watched it, but it was a while ago, you know, and it slowly dawned on me that I was kind of, they were telling me this story that I'd never heard before. And it, it felt to me like the origin story of modern U.S. soccer. What, what they did and what they accomplished led to everything else that, that has come after in many ways. And it was just so, first of all, you know, I, I didn't know it. And I assumed a lot of people didn't know it either. And it was just the perfect story. There's just, there's so many great elements to it. Um, I mean, you, you can go down the list, you know, the, the Federation president taking out a loan, betting his personal wealth or his business, we're not sure, on getting the, an American soccer team 
to a tournament they hadn't played in for 40 years. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a sports gambler, but that doesn't strike me as the safest bet to make. And, and yet he went all in. Uh, the players were absolutely fearless. You know, they were, they had uh, no experience at this. Um, it just, it just had the, it had all the makings of what felt like a great underdog sports story. All right. So and they did l- let's give a little context as to, because there's plenty of people that listen to our pod that are <laughs> much younger than I am. Uh, and we're, we're <laughs> right. either not alive or don't certainly have it in their, uh, in their memory. Uh, keep in mind, this was the first time that the U S men's national team had been back to the world cup since 1950. Uh, the Paul Caligiuri goal, the goal heard around the world from a U.S. perspective that had happened in qualifying to send the world, uh, the, uh, the U S men's national team to the world cup. Uh, it was grouped in, uh, keep in mind, this was in Italy. Uh, it was in group a with the hosts, Italy, Czechoslovakia uh, and Austria. As I mentioned, I was at that Austria game. They lost all three games. They were a team uh, comprised of largely uh, inexperienced, young, often collegiate types of players, a very different group and dynamic uh, than exists today. And certainly the pathways and the experience that they had was very, very, uh, uh, was very, very different. Um, when you started to talk to these players and get these stories both on and off the field, the dynamic that did emerge from them, because I was, I was part of a very different dynamic four years later in 1994, what was the 1990 team like in terms of those personalities uh, and uh, the, you know, the, uh, the interviews that you did with these players? The 1990 team was interesting because you know they were just sort of testing the waters in Europe. You know, Paul Caligiuri was in Germany. Christopher Sullivan was in Sweden and Hungary. Peter Vermees was just going to Hungary. Uh, Hugo Perez was was over in Europe. And a few of them were getting tryouts. You know, Tab was trying out and Tab Ramos was trying out in Spain. Bruce Murray had a tryout in Switzerland. But, um, you know, Europe was the goal. And they just had very little else at the time. I mean, most of them were fresh out of college. A couple of them were playing in the ethnic leagues. Um, a couple of them were playing indoor soccer. I mean, this was, this is no way to prepare for a world cup, you know? And what I found talking to them, what's so interesting, especially during world cup qualifiers is they had their backs against the wall. Failure was totally not an option because uh, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the future of soccer, in a way, was, was if you ask them, very much in question if they didn't make the World Cup. And yet, with their backs against the wall, like I said so many times, they were pretty fearless. And in talking to them, it sounds like one of the reasons was they really didn't know any better. This was, you know, th- this was the cream of, of the American youth system. And we're talking about guys that had won everything. I just imagine these childhood bedrooms full of you know, all these plastic trophies and medals and ribbons and, you know, just completely decorated. And so one of Brian Bliss was telling me, in fact, that like losing wasn't even a frame of reference for these guys. They'd won everything. And so it was in a sense, their naivete that carried them through. And then another thing too, is that, and I find this interesting when, when it comes to, you know, possibly comparing, um, comparing this team with the, with with the current team, but you know, 
any big team, and and you've obviously been a part of it. I, I sense that your '94 and '98 teams were, you know, full of alphas. But this ni- this '90 team was full of a bunch of big personalities, but they all had chips on their shoulders, mm-hmm. huge chips on their shoulders. I mean, we're talking alphas who are hungry, and I think, I mean, it. There's just no question that 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 carried them through. And you know this this group of players, and you mentioned some of them, and, and the list goes on and on, and includes mm-hmm. you know Casey Keller and a very young Chris Henderson uh, at, at the time, Tony Viola. Yeah. All of these guys, uh, for the most part, I mean the vast majority of them are still involved in the game and still actually having an impact off the field in so many different ways. Obviously, a lot of them coaching. Many of them have uh, gone on to do broadcast. Many of them are in front offices out there, and so they still have an effect, and therefore. They kind of had a a very unique perspective, having come uh, having come through all of that. When you were writing this book, and and one of the things I love about the way that you uh, have laid out this book is that you include music uh, in it, and you mentioned you know the, the video and everything like that. But you also have kind of a companion uh, piece, and you have music that goes with each chapter and each kind of story out there. Why did you decide to include music as part of? Literally, I guess the soundtrack and the backdrop to this uh, this incredible framing of this story. Well, you you said it right there. I I thought it'd make a useful. I'll back up a little bit. When I was first doing research for this book, I was trying to figure out, sort of trying to recall uh, what was going on in America at that time. And I was in around fifth grade myself when all this was happening. Which is to say, I was watching MTV constantly. Mm-hmm. I was going to the movies. I was just, you know, I was at that age where you're just absorbing tons and tons of pop culture. And uh, so, so I was realizing that all these great songs, movies, et cetera, were, were happening right in this era. And I thought, I thought it'd make a really cool framing device because one of the main subtexts of this book, and well, th- this team's story, let's say, is their struggle for any recognition at all. Um, you know, it, in an atmosphere, <laughs> I mean, American soccer in the late 80s, you know, Americans were just hell bent on either hating soccer or ignoring soccer. And they worked so hard to to get any recognition whatsoever that I thought uh, it would make this great framing device um, so that people who, uh, you know, even if they weren't aware of the team at the time and, and what they went through, they can at least connect it to, you know, songs movies etc that that spark memories and spark emotions and 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 then another thing too is in the story you know american popular culture was just totally on the ascent Mm -hmm. at the time just as america was sort of as as the cold war was ending and so you see in their travels and and whatnot that pop culture sort of follows them but also completely overshadows them at times and so i just thought it would make this interesting tension with their relationship to to the mainstream and 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 to american popular culture and i happen to like you know a lot of power ballads and golden era hip-hop and and all that so how could i resist it's beautiful about music and soccer right up my alley so i i love that exactly it's it's interesting you know you mentioned the you know how much has changed and so you know my group with with kobe jones and everything uh and we kind of came out with with the 94 World Cup and and obviously the US was hosting it but I vividly remember not just watching 
you know, players like Eric Winalda, but then getting to the national team and I'm, I'm his roommate and there's Tony Miola and these guys that I had watched on television, but also being very keenly aware. And look, we all stand on the shoulders of giants and including myself and others. And it just goes on. And that's kind of the way of the world, but being keenly aware that you're not in Kansas anymore. And that experience and that, that dynamic that you're talking about in 1990 had drastically changed. And it was impressed upon us that, that, the new responsibility, also the opportunity, and not to take it for granted. And we were constantly reminded, you think this is bad? You should have seen it back then. So <laughs> when, you, when you fast forward it right now, we're going into another World Cup. I think we're going in right now with arguably the greatest collection of talent. We don't know if that's going to translate onto the field uh, because there were certainly wonderfully talented players back then, albeit young and inexperienced. Do you see any similarities with this 2022 version of this team? Uh, not necessarily in the pathways that they took, but I guess the personality and the, dyna the, dam the dynamic that exists with this young and experienced team and that 1990 team. Yeah, there's some surface level things. Um, I mean, for, for for one thing, you know, only I, I can only think of one player in the in the active player pool who has any World Cup experience at all, which is DeAndre Yedlin, right? right? Yep. So none of these guys going to the World Cup have have ever been there before beyond that i mean I, I guess another surface level thing you know what one thing that i i found so interesting about this 1990 team is so many of them were sons of first generation immigrants it just makes this really great sort of american tale in a way you know they they grew up hearing nothing in their homes but soccer and then dreaming about you know bringing their own country america to to the world cup someday and they did it and now you know you, you look and we have such this sort of american soccer diaspora all around europe and and everywhere else and it's just sort of cool to see what what they had hoped had happened back then actually come to fruition i guess um and so that's a long way of saying you know i i, I think there's a lot of um sons of immigrants on this team which is which is cool to see it's hard to draw too many other parallels mm -hmm. i mean this team that i should say this team the 1990 team had stars you know maybe on an indoor team or whatever but you know th these were all young hungry guys you know aiming for playing time and i think we see a lot of that with the 2022 team you know no one's really a star of their team that that we can say um but again, you know, it, it goes back to, I think, what we were talking about a moment ago. This 2022 team, they will never understand. And, 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 and I think you probably have this too. They will never understand what this 1990 team and, and, and you probably went through, that, that chip on your shoulder and having something to prove. I mean, soccer's very existence in, in the United States just is no longer in question anymore. Right. You know, we've... It's here and we've made it thanks to you and, and others. And I, again, I think that's what got this 1990 team through. It was such a big ingredient in their success. How could it not be? And I just don't know if, if this team has it or not, really. I mean, I see more differences than similarities. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, if you were to be placed in front of this 2022 U.S. men's national team before this World Cup and you were... 
tasked with giving them some perspective. Uh, and, and again, Uh-oh. and again, in your book, uh, New Kids in the World Cup, the totally late 80s and early 90s tale of the team that changed American soccer forever. If you were tasked with giving them some specific examples that, you know, kind of landed and gave them some perspective as to the opportunity that they have and, you know, the wonderful wealth of resources <laughs> that they have relative to, you know, it seems long ago. It's really not that long ago. What are some of the examples that you would cite? And I don't want you to give away the whole book, uh, but uh, just some examples. Yeah. <laughs> First, I would remind them that back in 1989, players were making $20 a day while on duty with the national team. They were playing with contracts for around $30,000 a year. And that's all they had. You know, that wasn't their their national team, you know, per diem or stipend or whatever players are getting these days. Like that was it. And not only that, but I would also say, guys, if you lose, you know, you're, you're not the the guys back in, in 1989 were would have had to think about polishing their resumes come Monday had they lost in Trinidad. Um, you know, certainly that national team bonus and stipend wouldn't be around any longer. I mean, they'd have to go back to to finding day jobs. Right. They couldn't play soccer. I mean, they they would be soccer players, but they wouldn't be professional soccer players in much sense of the word, unless they went over and caught a lucky break in Europe, which I mean, talk about a hard time. Players in America playing for indoor teams and and back earlier for the NASL, any Americans on those teams had a tough time catching the breaks. The the foreign coaches and the front offices were, you know, pretty antagonistic toward toward American players. And I mean, <laughs> good luck making it in Europe at that time, too. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more. Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. As soccer fans, we have it pretty good these days. And soccer players probably have it even better these days. Even though, I mean, let's, let's be honest. They're under a whole lot more pressure and an unbelievable microscope that you know, players in earlier times just, just didn't face. So, you know, I, I guess you, I, I guess that comes with the territory as, as the game gets more popular in this country. Right. But that's right. a good thing. Right. As, it is absolutely a good thing. And as the saying goes, uh, you've come a long way, baby. And we certainly have, and, you know, <laughs> oftentimes, uh, Adam, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll talk about, and, and I try not to be too grumpy old man and uh, get off my lawn and remember the, the good old days, because let's be honest, it, it wasn't the good old days. I, I remain incredibly proud that, like you said, this generation that will take the field in November and December, they occupy, uh, occupy a completely different world and life relative to soccer than we ever did. And it's because of all of that work. And I don't even necessarily care whether they have perspective or even know. I mean, that that to me is progress. They That they grow up in a world and have all of these different pathways and resources is because of everything that came before, and they don't have to have an understanding. I don't want them to have to understand it, to be quite honest. Having said that, for those that are listening uh, and those that are watching right, right now, this is a wonderful way 
to understand some of the history that goes, uh, that is part of our game. And as I said, each and every time, there is so much out there that remains hidden and remains mysterious. And I love the fact, Adam, that you are bringing this to light for all of these uh, players, this team, this generation, that it, that deserves the credit that you are giving them, but also just deserves their stories told. Because there's a lot of focus, obviously, with the World Cup in 94 and being in the U.S. and everything. But 94 doesn't happen to a certain extent without 90 and and even before. But that 90 team for a lot of us, including yours truly right here, it changed everything for me. When I am sitting in the in the stands and I am you know watching uh, my team play at that point against Austria. And as a matter of fact, before the game, uh, the late great, rest in peace, David Vinoli, backup goalkeeper uh-huh. to Tony Miola uh, on that team and just a, a larger-than-life personality, as you know, actually kicked a ball into the stands before the game as a souvenir. And it landed in the hands of the man directly in front of me. And I, <laughs> it was the closest that I had ever gotten to touching a World Cup ball because at that point, I didn't know four years later I would actually be running around with many of those players uh, on the field. So this is, as I said, near and dear to my heart, the music, the soccer, uh, and the telling of this incredible story of the 1990 World Cup. Again, uh, author Adam Elder, the uh, author, as I said, of New Kids in the World Cup, the totally late 80s and early 90s tale of a team that changed American soccer forever. It drops on November 1st, uh, University of Nebraska Press. Adam, anything to say to your adoring public out there before we let you go (laughs) i would just say i i I would definitely back you up on what you just said you know this it's really hard it's it's easy to overestimate how difficult it is to to do anything for the first time i mean when when you're figuring everything out from scratch yep that's really hard to do and secondly you know you you mentioned david vinoli perfect example there's a lot of these players that you know that that was their only world cup they never got another chance at it and these are great guys and very memorable personalities, and they had a wonderful story. Other than that, I would say um, I'm going on a West Coast tour in November. So if you uh, like the book and want to come out and have a party afterwards, uh, check me out. Uh, check out the website, newkidsintheworldcup.com, and say soccer, hi to me on Twitter. Soccer, music, party. It's beautiful. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the State of the Union. Thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning into this special episode. Again, one more time. New Kids in the World Cup, the totally late 80s and early 90s tale of a team that changed American soccer forever from my good friend Adam Elder. We will talk to you again, and until next time, size the day. <laughs>